Nutmeg Junction presents Barnaby Druthers. Barnaby Druthers, London's second favorite private detective, investigates mysteries with his intellectual partner, Irene Adler. In the classic Victorian-era tales, Barnaby picks up where the most famous London detective left off. In the modern Druthers stories, Barnaby explores mysteries in modern-day America. Right here on Barnaby Druthers. Barnaby Druthers, a short story, The Emerald Lady. Written, created, and produced by J. Timothy Quirk, copyright 2021. Starring Devin Richtmeyer and Humphrey Ralston. Featuring Danny Cook and Susie Colpitz. Directed by A.J. Lynn. Music by Bob Eccleston. Barnaby Druthers, The Emerald Lady. Aboard the forever loved, Mr. Druthers. The wind is calm and the craft is steady. Steady compared to what exactly, Mr. Dooley? I fear it rocks back and forth like a reed in the wind. Oh, the waves are gentle, I assure you, and the weather will suit us well. Last night, the red sky promised us good sailing today. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky at morning, sailor's warning. Entirely remarkable, wouldn't you say, Miss Adler? Indubitably, Barnaby. What a lovely dress, Allegra. A lovely, viridescent glow. Oh, you're very kind, Irene. Does Mr. Druthers not enjoy nautical activities? Activities upon the water are enjoyed most by those who possess the knowledge of surviving should they fall into it. Surely you've been entertained on a houseboat, Mr. Druthers. I've been aboard a houseboat, Mr. Dooley, but as to being entertained on one, that is still a question open to much debate either this later date Still, we are both grateful for your invitation. I'm sure Barnaby will be entertained this evening, as will we all. We just adore houseboats. Leonard hires one every year. Every year? Investments have done well. Let us hope they continue. Would you like the tour? Is there a choice between touring and sitting? If so, I choose the latter. (laughs) An excellent choice, Mr. Druthers. As an esteemed guest, either choice is perfectly suitable. I am gratified to be your guest, whether on land or at sea, or in this case, the River Thames. We can set sail shortly, just checking the wind and the current. I assume that's important. We don't want to be pushed back into the dock, old boy. Would you like to take the bow line? The rope? I'm afraid I cannot reach it from this seat. (laughs) Of course. Yes, I'll get it. You are very good at this sort of thing, you know. Well, as my wife said, we hire a boat every year. It's my understanding Mr. Druthers is something of a man of mystery. Is that not so, Miss Adler? I have often found his ways quite mysterious indeed. And how did you become acquainted with him? It is rather a long story before dinner, but not quite as long after one. 
Ah, we're moving. Leonard will find a quiet spot to dock along the river and we shall enjoy a riparian feast. So Miss Adler pointed to the five buttons and said, no need for buttons, Barnaby. We have the case all sewed up. <laughs> that is quite the tale, Mr. Druthers. It seems Irene has conducted more than her share in the deduction that solved the mystery. I wonder that she does not share more in the credit. It was more beneficial for me that I remain a more silent partner in the tale. As time has moved forward, I have not been sorry for that choice. But pray, tell me, what tales of adventure would you care to share? Oh, we are not the adventurous sort. No, indeed, we are not. Having an astute knowledge of the sea demonstrates a level of adventure that escapes even me, Mr. Dooley. You must have some tales of the nautical life. Perhaps, Leonard, you can tell the tale of the Emerald Lady. Oh, I'm not sure it's the best tale to tell. It sounds fascinating. Yes, please, tell us your tale of the Emerald Lady. Yes, Leonard, tell the story. Very well, if you insist. A refresher before we begin. Top. Uh, Miss Adler? No, thank you. Darling? Yes, please. Thank you, dear. The Emerald Lady. Now, above all else, you should remember that Viola Harlow fell passionately in love with Daniel Tappan, and he with her, and there was never a love so real, so deep and powerful in history or in fiction to match that of Viola and Daniel. Tappan sailed aboard the finest clipper in British service. She was called the Emerald Lady. A score of sails flew from bow to stern. She was designed to be the fastest merchant ship in the sea. But what made her most extraordinary was the figurehead fastened to her bow. Those who saw her say she was the most beautiful image to ever face the seven seas. And of that you can be certain because the figurehead was every bit the likeness of Viola Harlow. Viola Harlow was the daughter of Josiah Harlow, the stern owner of the trading company that bore his name. You've heard of it, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Pray continue. One always wondered which Josiah loved more, his beloved daughter or the company he built in his many years. He believed both represented his best chance at a legacy and a bold promise for his future. Well, as I've told you, the Emerald Lady was a fast ship, but the sharp dead rise of the hull ensured that only when it was filled with cargo would a trip result in a profitable outcome. So it was for the first six voyages of the Emerald Lady, and they made Josiah a fortune. How wonderful. I always enjoy a happy ending to a good story. Barnaby, clearly the story is just beginning. I don't blame you, sir. Everyone enjoys a happy ending. Few obtain it, however. On the seventh and fateful voyage of the Emerald Lady, the Clipper met a most unusual fate. For you see, Viola had fallen in love with Daniel Tappan, who sailed on board the Emerald Lady, but Daniel was not the captain. The captain was an old sea dog named Phelps. Daniel Tappan was a simple sailor who held no particular distinction other than he held the heart of the lovely Viola. 
he was unworthy of her, but he could not help but profess his love for her, as young men do. And much to his surprise and disbelief, she shared his emotion. It was said that she saw in him something pure, something rare. He did not want her father's money, or possess her like a treasure, or worship her as an idol. He saw her face when he closed his eyes, and all he longed for was to see it when he opened them. When Josiah discovered the two together, he flew into a rage. What happened station of life was unworthy of his progeny. Of course he was unworthy. Even Tappan himself would have proclaimed it. But Viola was the North Star, and he could not help but sail by her. Josiah forbade his daughter from ever seeing Tappan, and Viola, with a passionate spirit that matched her father, refused the instruction and would see no one else. It vexed Josiah to no end, and it was said by some that Josiah instructed Captain Phelps to be particularly cruel to Tappan during his service. And you can be sure Captain Phelps was not a man to shirk his duties. The purpose, I suppose, was to dissuade Tappan's affections for Viola by any means suitable to the charge. And Phelps was a creative, bitter man who enjoyed this particular labor. Tappan bore the unjust punishment as proof of his love. The sea will always have her way. After sailing from the port of Littleton, New Zealand, with cargo that included gold and flax, somewhere between Melbourne and Madagascar, the Emerald Lady disappeared, and with it went Viola's heart. What do you think happened to the ship? Well, flax is very flammable when compacted together in a hull. Why, the same thing happened to the Blue Jacket in 1869. A sailor with a very good ear to the ground would have known it. It's unclear why the captain, possibly too busy with his duties of meting out injustice, did not know of it either. What was to come of Viola? Yes, Viola. Uh, Viola held out hope that she would one day see Daniel again, for no wreckage has ever washed ashore. But as the months passed, it became clear that the Emerald Lady would never make it to London, and all was lost. And so, like the Emerald Lady, Viola Harlow vanished. Josiah lost both his ship and his daughter that year. Some say, like the Emerald Lady herself, Viola joined her likeness and submerged into the waters, never to resurface. But when the sun sets, sailors can hear the wail of the Emerald Lady searching for her love. A fascinating story. And a true one, I should think. All good stories are true, from a certain point of view. You have given me much to think about. Think away, my man, while I steer us back to the dock. Thank you for a lovely evening on board the Forever Loved. We have enjoyed your company, Irene and Barnaby. And we yours. We thoroughly enjoyed your tale of the Emerald Lady. But I do feel as though it is missing one essential detail, however. Indeed. What would that be, Mr. Druthers? The fate of Mr. Josiah Harlow, of course. 
What, pray tell, do you think happened to Josiah Harlow? I'm sure he retired with his fortune. All his wealth would not have sunk with the Emerald Lady. Would it surprise you to discover he searched for his daughter? That would be surprising, yes. The disappearance of the clipper ship and the cargo did not sink his wealth, but the search for his daughter did. He didn't believe she would jump into the sea. He wouldn't have, and so neither would she. They shared the same temperament, after all. So, as to the question, which did he love more, his company or his daughter, the answer was proven in that he spent all he possessed from one to find the other, including hiring those who conduct private inquiries to find her and her husband and invite them home. Because a happy ending to the story would be that Daniel Tappan would have discovered the danger of the cargo and disembarked before it left Littleton, and possibly if part of the cargo was girled, well, it's entirely possible a small piece of it he would have considered as payment for the wages he would not collect. Would that be reasonable? It sounds reasonable. Supposing after months, Daniel and Viola spirited themselves away and with the girls started their lives anew under new names. It sounds a rather joyful enterprise. That would be something you would gravitate towards, Allegra. Doesn't Allegra mean joyful? I think it does. No matter. It is one way to interpret the story. One ends in a tragedy, the other is a happier ending. Everyone enjoys a happy ending. I think now you, Mr. Druthers, have given me much to think about. I hope so. But for now, we shall leave you on board your houseboat. What is it called again? The Forever Loved. I think in any version of the Emerald Lady story, no matter what choices are made now or in the future, the story will and should always end in the Forever Loved. present a short story, the Saturn Theatre on the Air's presentation of Oscar Wilde's The Model Millionaire, performed by Jerry Crystal. Please enjoy. And now, a Saturn Theatre Extra. While Oscar Wilde is best known for his plays and novels, he also wrote a few collections of poetry and some short stories. Today's short story, The Model Millionaire, is another example of how Wilde uses the world of the upper class as the backdrop for examining the virtuousness of his characters. And now, The Model Millionaire by Oscar Wilde. Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit, he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life, 
But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with his crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eyes. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass and put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and he lived on two hundred pounds a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on the stock exchange for six whole months, but what was a butterfly to do among the bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchon. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India, and he had never found either of them again. Laura adored Huey, and he was ready to kiss her very shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you've got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it then, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum in those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Holland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see an old friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter. Indeed, few people escape that passion nowadays. But he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange, rough fellow, with a freckled face and red, ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted to Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are posh or beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual repose to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world, at least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirits and his generous, reckless nature, and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like wrinkled parchment and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was flung a coarse brown cloak, all tears and tatters. His thick boots were patched and cobbled, and with one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. Oh, what an amazing model, whispered Huey as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, <laughs> shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. 
Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A living Velasquez. My stars, what an action Rembrandt would have made of him. Poor chap, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters his face is his fortune. Certainly. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting? Asked Huey, as he found himself a comfortable seat on a divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this I'll get two thousand. Two thousand pounds? Guineas! Painters, poets, and physicians always get the extra bit with the guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage. <laughs> Cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense! Why look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone and standing all day long at one's easel? It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk. But I assure you that there are moments when art almost obtains to the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Uh, smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, a servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Uh, don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I'll be back in a minute. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. The old beggar looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help but pity him. He felt in his pockets to see what money he had, but all he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He needs it more than I do, but it means no more handsome cabs for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile flittered across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura and got a charming scolding for his extravagant generosity and had to walk home. That night, he strolled into the pallet club about eleven o'clock and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right? Finished in frame, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you. I had to tell him all about you, who you are, where you live, what your income is, what the prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I should probably find him waiting for me when I get home. But of course you're only choking. Poor wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it's dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. And he looks splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesqueness to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Ellen, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor. And besides, our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. Ah, chachons se mettent, to each his own job. And now, tell me how Laura is. The old model was quite interested in her. What? You don't mean to say you talked to him about her? Said Huey. 
Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand pounds. You told that old beggar all my private affairs? cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without even overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off a gold plate, and can start to prevent countries going to war as he chooses. What on earth do you mean? exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing, and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. And I must say, he had a magnificent figure in his rags. Or perhaps I should say in my rags. They are an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hosberg? cried Huey. Good heavens, I gave him a sovereign. And he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst into a roar of laughter. <laughs> My dear boy, you'll never see it again. His business is other people's money. I think you might have told me, said Huey sulkily, not let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey, said Trevor, it never entered my mind that you went about distributing alms in that reckless way. I can understand you're kissing a pretty model, but you're giving a sovereign to an ugly one. <laughs> By Jove, no. Besides, the fact is that I really was not at home today for anyone. And when you came in, I didn't know whether Halsberg would like his name mentioned. You notice he wasn't in full dress. What a duffer he must think me, said Huey. Not at all. He was in the highest spirits after you left, kept chuckling to himself and rubbing his old wrinkled hands together. I couldn't make out why he was so interested to know all about you, but I see it now. He'll invest your sovereign for you. Huey, he'll pay you interest every six months, and you'll have a capital story to tell it after dinner. I am an unlucky devil, growled Huey. The best thing I can do is to go to bed. And, and my dear Alan, you mustn't tell anyone. I, I shouldn't even dare show my face in the club. Nonsense. It reflects the highest credit on your philanthropic spirit, Huey. And don't run away. Have another cigarette, and we can talk about Lara as much as you like. However, Huey wouldn't stop, but walked home, feeling very unhappy, and leaving Alan Trevor in fits of laughter. The next morning, as he was at breakfast, the servant brought him up a card on which was written, Monsieur Gustave Nordine, representing the Baron Habsburg. I suppose he's come for an apology, said Huey to himself, and he told the servant to show the visitor up. An old gentleman with gold spectacles and gray hair came into the room and said in a slight French accent, Have I the honor of addressing Monsieur Erskine? Huey bowed. I have come from Baron Holzberg. He continued. The Baron will- I beg you, sir, offer the Baron my sincerest apologies, stammered Huey. The Baron, said the old gentleman with a smile, has commissioned me to bring this letter to you. And he extended a sealed envelope. On the outside was written, a wedding present to Hugh Erskine and Laura Martin from an old beggar. And inside was a check for 10,000 pounds. 
When they were married, Alan Trevor was the best man, and the Baron made a speech at the wedding breakfast. Millionaire models, remarked Alan, are rare enough. But by Jove, model millionaires are rarer still. <laughs>